Good morning. It's good to see you all and to have this opportunity to open up God's word together with you. Uh, before we do that, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us again briefly, and then we will look at God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray what we just sang, Lord, that you would hold us fast, and that through the preaching of your word and the ministry of your spirit, that you would bring those who are present into your family and into your firm grip, and that you would keep those who are present, who are already in your firm grip, that you would hold us tightly and we would know the presence and power of your spirit in our life today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. If you're using the Bible that we provided, you'll find Genesis 38 on page 32. As always, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to the passage so that you can follow along as I read it in a few moments. And then after I'm done reading, I don't want, don't shut your Bible. Don't put it away. I want to encourage you to keep it open as we'll be referencing the passage often in our time together today. Uh, Last week, we started the final section of Genesis, which runs from chapter 37 all the way to chapter 50. These uh, chapters are known broadly as the Joseph narratives, the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob, who was sold into slavery by his brothers in chapter 37. What would become of him? If you're reading the Bible for the first time and chapter, chapter 37 comes to an end and you see that he's been sold into slavery in Egypt, you're likely eager to find out what happened to Joseph there, what became of him. And you expect, as you turn to Genesis 38, to find out what happened to Joseph. But what you find is a really dark chapter uh, that at first glance seems completely unrelated to Joseph and utterly out of place. But what we'll find is that it's not out of place at all. And while it is dark, there are two crucial truths about God hidden within. I also want to uh, say briefly uh, to those of you who might be visiting with us for the first time today, uh, I'm going to read the whole chapter for us so you'll get to see how dark this chapter is. And it might be kind of shocking just to to hear, whoa, this, this is actually in the Bible. What is going on here? Why is this in the Bible? I think I want to encourage you, if you are a visitor and it's your first time here, uh, what you're going to hear is, uh, from this chapter is that the Bible doesn't shy away from the sinfulness of mankind and from some of the evil things that go on in the world. What you're also going to find is that hidden within this chapter and the darkness of this chapter are two crucial truths that we learn about God and about how he responds to sin and to sinners. Uh, So we don't want to shy away from anything that the Bible has. We've been preaching through Genesis, going through a sermon series in Genesis. So we just, we want to own what's in chapter 38, and we want to see what it has to say to us today. So that's why I'm preaching on this chapter, and why we're going to deal squarely with what's going on in it. And we will see, ultimately, that there are two crucial truths about God hidden within this chapter, truths about who God is, how he's chosen to respond to sinners, and those two truths are vitally important for us to learn today. So kids and teens, right? You guys are in school. You're all learning lots of important things in school, probably history, science, math, 
geography, things like that. Those those things are important, and you need to learn them. But these two things that we learn about God in Genesis 38 are more important than those things. You might even say the most important things that we could learn about today. So I want us all, adults, teens, kids, to be ready to engage with what God has to say to us today in Genesis 38. So I invite you to follow along as I read God's word for us now. This is God's word. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away. And taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, uh, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out, and let her be burned 
as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. After his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. You've taken notes, the main lesson for us today from Genesis 38 is that our God is a God of surprising justice and surprising mercy. Our God is a God of surprising justice and surprising mercy. And so first, our God is a God of surprising justice. We see that in verses one to 11. I want you to look there with me. I'm gonna move pretty quickly through this to make the best use of our time. You'll see that before continuing to tell us about what happened to Joseph, Moses tells us about some events that took place in his brother Judah's life. In quick succession, we learn in verses one to three that Judah left his family took up residence among the Canaanites, befriended a man named Hira, married a Canaanite woman, and had three children with her, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Moses then quickly fast forwards to when Ur was old enough to get married. Judah takes a wife for Ur, but Ur, we find out, was wicked. Look at verse seven with me. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And that leads to what happens next. Go ahead and look now with me at verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Quick background on this because the entire drama of this chapter revolves around the necessity of raising up an offspring for Ur and for Tamar, his widow. In the ancient world, continuing the line of a deceased man was exceedingly important. If a man died without children, it was as though he was blotted out from history, as though he never existed. No one to carry on his name. And so they had what were called leveret laws. The word leveret comes from the Latin levere, which means brother-in-law, which is why Judah tells Onan to perform the duty of a brother-in-law. Those laws stipulated that the oldest brother of the deceased man would provide a child for the deceased man by sleeping with the deceased man's wife, and the child that came out of that union would be counted as belonging to the deceased man. 
and to his lineage. That child would take his name and carry on his line. Broadly speaking, these laws did two things. First, it continued the deceased man's lineage so that he would not be blotted out from history. Since that child was counted as his, he would take on his name, carry on his lineage, and receive that man's inheritance. And second, the child provided security for the widow. One of the most vulnerable groups in the ancient Near East and throughout Old Testament history were widows. Women at this time were essentially completely dependent on either their husband or their father for provision and protection. And women who had been married but were now widowed weren't sought out by other men as wives, leaving them in a really vulnerable position. Unless they had a father who was living, they had nobody to protect and provide for them. So these laws were meant to provide for and protect the woman. The child that was born would become the heir of the deceased man. He would receive that man's inheritance, and that inheritance would, in a sense, belong to and provide for the widow. That's why Judah gives Onan the instruction that he does. As odd as it may seem to us, this was a custom. There were laws governing this custom in the ancient world, and it was meant to carry on the man's line and provide a blessing for the widow. But Onan refuses to help. Now, he doesn't refuse physical intimacy, mind you. He's happy for that. What he refuses to do in verse 9 is provide Tamar with a child. And so we read in verse 10, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death also. I said that our God is a God of surprising justice. And what makes his just justice so surprising, at least here in Genesis 38, is that we see just how seriously God takes sin. Both of these men sinned. According to Moses, they were wicked in the sight of the Lord, and God judged them both for it. God took both of their lives because of their sin. When the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death, Genesis 38 shows us how true that really is. The wages of sin is death. God takes sin that seriously. And his justice is also surprising because we see just how seriously God takes all sin. Large sins and small sins. Grievous sins and respectable sins. Here's where I think we see that. Moses tells us Ur and Onan were wicked in the sight of the Lord. Now, we don't know what Ur did that caused God to put him to death. We might assume it was really bad. I think we might assume that because I'm going to ask the kids a question. 
Can anyone else tell, can, can any of you tell me what other two times, or only two times so far in the book of Genesis, where people have been described as wicked in God's sight? Can any of you tell me, teens, kids, what other two times has that happened? Cooper. Sodom and Gomorrah, one of them, correct. What is the other time where people have been called wicked in the sight of the Lord? It was earlier in Genesis, Claire. Cain, that that would make sense why you would guess that. It's after Cain, between Sodom and Cain. Before the flood, God looked down on man and saw the wickedness of man. Mankind was wicked in his sight and it grieved God. And what did God do? Both in the flood and at Sodom, brought judgment. And so when when you hear that Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, you think Sodom and Gomorrah and the flood, man must have been doing some evil stuff, right? Possibly, but notice Onan's sin. What did he do that was wicked in God's sight? Here's how I would describe it. He was greedy. He was selfish. He was self-interested. He knew that if he provided a child for Ur, that, that child would receive Ur's inheritance. But if he didn't provide a child for Ur, who would Ur's inheritance transfer to? The next oldest son, Onan. If I provide a child for Tamar, that child's going to get the inheritance, my father's inheritance. But if I don't provide a child for Tamar, that inheritance comes to me. Greedy, self-interested, unwilling to help a widow and provide and protect for a widow, not willing to sacrifice his own good for the good of others. That's why Moses tells us in verse 9, if you look there, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. He's conscious of what's going on here and the ramifications of what's involved for him, what he might be able to get out of this situation. He's greedy, he's selfish, he's unwilling to sacrificially serve, and that was wicked in God's sight. And the Lord put him to death also. This is surprising justice. We need to be warned by God's surprising justice. What we tend to view as small sins or respectable sins or sins that are so common that we just learn to overlook them because, yeah, all people do them, and so we denigrate and depreciate the value of those sins and how grievous they are to God. What we learn in Scripture is that God responds to sins that we view as small as wicked in his sight and worthy of judgment. In fact, he brings judgment by putting these men to death. We need to be warned by God's surprising justice. You see, the Bible describes God as holy. That means he is absolutely pure. He's perfect through and through. Not a hint of evil in him at all. And as a perfectly holy God, 
he is absolutely opposed to all sin. Where we might be inclined to excuse some sins or overlook them because they're so common, God being perfectly pure and holy doesn't overlook any sins. In his surprising justice, he will search out and bring judgment on everyone who sins. Now, if, if you don't understand yourself to be a follower of Jesus, I recognize that talk of God judging people is really hard. Like, what? It seems so contrary to, to what I've heard about God. He's a loving God. We're, we are going to talk about his love. It may seem distasteful to you. Isn't God supposed to be loving? How, how could he judge people like this? But I've wondered if you've considered that God's justice is actually an expression of his love for people. If he were to allow evil to run rampant and unchecked, countless millions of people would suffer at the hands of evil men and women. The world would be unlivable, uninhabitable. Case in point, there are a handful of cities in the U.S. right now, uh, like San Francisco, New York, that are actively choosing to not prosecute certain crimes that in the past would have been prosecuted, and rightly so. And as a result, two things have happened in those cities. Crime has soared, and with that soaring crime, those cities have become unlivable, and people have moved elsewhere to escape it. If God didn't carry out justice, it would be unloving for him to do so because the entire world would become inhospitable and we would have no place to relocate to. You see, God's surprising justice is a good thing. It is good for, be good for God to be just. And I trust you're glad when people who commit evil acts are brought to justice. Right? Think of terrorists who have done evil being brought to justice. Or people who've committed mass shootings being brought to justice. It is good when people who do evil things are brought to justice. It is good when God brings those people to justice. I think the reason why we struggle with God's surprising justice is because we recognize that at some point, his surprising justice will lead him to our doorstep. And that is when it gets hard. Who among us hasn't acted with greed in their heart before? Who among us hasn't acted with self-service in their heart before? Who among us has been unwilling to put the needs of others ahead of our own, like Onan? Who hasn't done that? Who, hasn't, who among us hasn't told a lie? or been mean to someone, or disobeyed our parents, or committed countless other small sins. It's when the light of God's holiness is trained on us that we begin to squirm. We get uncomfortable, we even get angry that God would punish sin. It's like, yes to punishing sin out there, no, not to me, I don't deserve it. It's not right for you to do that. There's a show that I've been watching 
uh, where the main character is a detective, and while he's on vacation, a puzzling crime occurs. He gets involved in helping to solve the crime, but because he's on vacation, he's, he's going to have to leave the place where the crime occurred. But some of the town people see how insightful he is, how good at being a de- detective he is, and they ask him to stick around and to help solve the case, and he obliges. What they don't realize is how relentless he is, how unwilling he is to not pursue every lead and find every answer to every question, and pretty soon, in the course of the show, he is finding out all sorts of sins that people in the town have committed, and he's bringing them out into the light, and the people of the town start raging because of it. Some of them even tried to kill him. They wanted a detective who would bring justice to other people, not, not one who would bring them justice to their doorstep for the sins they've committed. I think we think of God's justice that way. We want God to bring evil people to justice, not realizing that, will, that God will eventually, that will mean that God will eventually bring us to justice. And in his surprising justice, God will bring every sin into the light and bring judgment on all who've sinned. Think about Onan, what's going on there. If you're living with Onan, you're seeing him go into the tent with Tamar and you're seeing him come out and you think, that man's faithful. He's doing what's right. But God sees within the heart. God is like an amazing wine sommelier. He's able to taste all the hints of everything that's going on in that grape. He's able to detect every strand of false and sinful motivation in your heart, in every act that you've ever committed, and he will bring it out into the light, and he will bring judgment on all sin, both sins that have happened in action and sin that happens in our heart. And we need to be warned because all of us have sinned. And since all have sinned, we're all under his judgment. And his judgment may come sooner rather than later in our lives. These men were struck down in the prime of life for their sins. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who dies young is being struck down for their sins, not at all. The only reason we know these men were struck down by God is because God tells us. We can't look around the world and say, this is what God is doing. But we know that God acts in this way because he tells us. What I am saying is that we don't know when our end will come. And we'll have to face God's surprising justice. And God warns us of his surprising justice so that we would turn from sin and flee to him for mercy. Because what we find in the passage is that while our God is a God of surprising justice, he's also a God of surprising mercy. And that brings us to point two, surprising mercy. And we see his surprising mercy towards Judah and Tamar in the rest of the chapter. In verse 11, you can look there with me, we're told that after his second son dies, Judah sends Tamar to live with her father until his third son, Shelah, is old enough to provide a child for Tamar. But in reality, Judah is simply pawning Tamar off to her father. He has no intention of giving Shelah to her because he fears that Shelah is gonna die Two, which would leave him in the same position as Ur of having no son to carry on his name. So notice already how deficient Judah's character is. He lies to Tamar 
because he never intends to give Shelah to her, and he's just as self-serving as his son Onan. And yet, the Lord doesn't put Judah to death. But we get even more insight into the type of person Judah was in what happens next. In verses 12 to 18, we learn that Judah's wife dies. He spends the traditional week of mourning, mourning for her, and then he was comforted after that week. And then because he's a shepherd, he travels to visit his flock when their wool was being cut. Years have passed since Judah sent Tamar away. Tamar hears that Judah is going to visit his flock. She sees that Judah has not given Shelah to her as a husband to provide a child for her. She's still in need of a child, so she takes matters into her own hands. She dresses up in clothes that were commonly worn by prostitutes, and she goes to a place that Judah was going to pass through on the way to visit his sheep. He arrives, he sees her, he thinks she's a prostitute, and so he solicits her. They agree that he'll pay her a goat for her services, but since he doesn't have a goat with him, she asks for a pledge, right? I'm gonna hold you to this, right? You're probably gonna take advantage of me, and what we know about Judah's character so far, probably right. She was right to ask him for a pledge. He probably wasn't gonna pay. So she asks for a pledge, something that would guarantee he'll pay, and he gives her his signet, which is like a little stone or metal tablet that had his family insignia on it. It would be used to sign documents to show that he was the owner of the document or was agreeing to the document. And the signets were often attached to a necklace or a cord so that they could carry him around. So he gives her his signet, his little stone insignia, his cord, the necklace used to carry the, the signet, and his shepherd's staff. Uh, in modern terms, he gave her his driver's license, his passport, and his social security card. Like, bro, like, I mean, come on. What are you doing here, right? All of these would have clearly identified him as the man who slept with her. He seems unconcerned about it. Tamar then conceives a child. He never recognizes her because she's covered in a veil. Then she goes away in possession of his identification. He eventually sends payment of the goat to the woman he thought was a prostitute, only to find she wasn't, and decides not to keep looking for her to get his identification back, because doing so would have brought upon him the ridicule of the townspeople. You gave her what? Like, come on, dude. Like, what were you thinking? You gave all of your identification to a woman who appeared to be a prostitute. What is wrong with you? He didn't want to face the ridicule, so he said, all right, let's forget about this situation, and let's move forward. Then in verses 24 and following, three months pass, and Judah finds out that Tamar has been immoral. She's slept with someone who isn't her husband, and now she is clearly pregnant. He's outraged, and he responds with heartless brutality. He tells his friend Hira, the Adulamite, bring her out and let her be burned. She's brought out, and the moment she's been waiting for arrives. She sends the signet, the cord, and the staff, and tells him, the man who got me pregnant, these things belong to him. Verse 26, Judah identifies them, and he's busted. I mean, if you have ever felt shame in having your sin exposed, you can imagine the wave of shame that came over him at this moment. 
recognizing that he had been caught. And he responds, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. He recognizes that she has exposed his sin of failing to care for a woman he was committed by marriage to care for. Now notice what we've learned about Judah. He's a liar. He lies and tells Tamar he'll give Shelah, which he never intends to do. He's self-serving. He wants to protect his own son and his own lineage rather than risk caring for a widow. He's sexually immoral. Apparently, apparently, he's so sexually immoral that Tamar knows all she needs to do is dress up with, like a prostitute and he will do the deed. And he does do the deed. He's also brutally heartless, willing to burn a woman without blinking an eye. And he's a hypocrite of the first degree, excusing his own sexual immorality while willing to put Tamar to death for hers. Fine, if I do it, put her to death. This dude is terrible. That's the picture that we have of Judah in Genesis 38. Not only that, but we have to admit that Tamar is also guilty of sinning by deception. She lies. And through her lies, she ends up doing, with, doing something with Judah that God will later condemn among his people in the book of Deuteronomy. And Judah says she's more righteous than I. He isn't saying she's righteous and perfect and, and I'm not. He's just, she's more righteous than me. Both are guilty. And listen, if we deal squarely with the text, we have to say, Judah should have been put to death by God because what he did was worse than what Onan did. But God doesn't put him to death. Instead, God shows Judah and Tamar surprising mercy. Where do we see that? The answer that we need to take a step back and look at what Moses is doing. Genesis 37 Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt. Genesis 39 picks up with Joseph in Egypt. Sandwiched right between those, those two chapters is a chapter, just seems like, what? Where is this coming from? How does this fit into the story? Why do we need to know this? Well, the reason that we need to know this is because this chapter is showing us who God's promised salvation is going to flow through. Through our study in Genesis, we've been tracing the line of people who receive God's promised salvation and through whom God's promised Messiah would come. We've seen that the promised Messiah would come from Abraham and then from Abraham's son, Isaac, and then from Isaac's son, Jacob. Now at this point, if we're reading Genesis, we're thinking Jacob's son, Joseph, is definitely inheriting the promise. He's Jacob's favorite son, gives him a robe of many colors. The dude seems perfect and righteous and all his brothers are terrible. But Genesis 38 shows us is that in God's surprising mercy, that promised salvation has transferred not to Joseph, but to sinful Judah and Canaanite Tamar. That's the point of the birth narrative that closes the chapter. Throughout Genesis, we've seen the promise extend to the next generation through miraculous and surprising births where God chooses the younger son over the older son. Isaac's birth was miraculous. Sarah was barren and very old. 
right? And God chose him over his older brother Ishmael. Jacob's birth was exceedingly unique as he wrestled with his twin brother and older brother in the womb, and God chose younger Jacob over older Esau. And now, at the end of chapter 38, if you look there with me, you have this surprising birth story of Judah and Tamar's twins. One puts out his hand first, becoming the older brother, so they tie a a scarlet thread around his finger in order to identify him as the older brother. Then he pulls his hand back, and the younger one breaks through, and they exclaim, what a breach you have made, as though the second child has broken through to take the place of the first child, so they called his name Perez. And then the older brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand. You're even seeing a connection there between Red Esau, Red Edom, the older brother, and Red Zerah with the scarlet thread around his hand. But neither older Esau nor older Zerah are chosen for the promise. Instead, the promise flows through the younger brother, Perez. The unique circumstances of this birth show that it is through this family, this jacked up family, Judah and Tamar, that God's promised Messiah would come. God, in his surprising mercy, brought sinful, self-serving, sexually immoral, heartless hypocrite Judah into his family, as well as the sinful Canaanite Tamar, who was willing to deceive a man in order to get what she wanted. And that is confirmed later in Genesis, when Jacob promises that the Messiah is going to come through Judah. You, You almost have to take a step back, right, and think about Revelation 5, that Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. You almost might think Jesus might want to distance himself from that tribe a little bit. Maybe pick a different tribe for me to be named after, but he draws near those who are sinners. He draws near those who are sinful, happy to be called from their genealogy to come from them to show the type of people that God brings into his family through his surprising mercy. But it's not just confirmed in Genesis. We see it confirmed throughout Scripture that the promise is given to Judah. From Perez would eventually be born Boaz, who would marry the widowed Canaanite Ruth. And then through them would be born King David, the youngest of his seven brothers. And from David would eventually come the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, when we go back to chapter 37, at the very beginning of the chapter, you read, these are the generations of Jacob. This is the genealogy of Jacob. That is the last, these are the generation, uh, generations of statement that you are gonna find in all of the Old Testament. While there are other genealogies, that's the last, these are the generations of statement. If you were to translate Hebrew into Greek, you would find that the very next, these are the generations of statement comes in Matthew 1 with the birth of Jesus Christ, tracing out the lineage of people that the Savior would come from. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. In Genesis 38, 
we find the surprising reality that the God of surprising justice is also a God of surprising mercy, who surprisingly and mercifully brings sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation on earth to share in the great salvation that he has offered to, his, to all mankind through his son, Jesus. This Jesus made salvation possible by living the perfect life that we all should have lived. He fulfilled God's law, his perfect standard of perfect righteousness on our behalf. He then died on the cross in our place, bearing the punishment we deserve for our sins. And after he died, he rose from the dead, showing that God accepted, to, accepted his sacrifice, and he offers to all people everywhere a surprisingly free and full pardon of our sins if we would repent and trust in him. And that surprising mercy is offered to you today if you don't know Jesus. Friend, I hope you see from Genesis 38 both that God will judge us for our sins, but he will also forgive anyone who turns to him for forgiveness. Case in point, Judah and Tamar, they are both proof of that. If you think there is no way God will accept me because you don't even know what goes on in my heart, John. You're right, I don't know what goes on in your heart. I don't know what you've done. But I can just tell you from Scripture, from what we know in Scripture, from what we see in Scripture, that God takes wretched sinners and mercifully saves them and brings them into his family. His mercy and grace, we, we will often shake our heads at the fact that God is gracious. Christians, when we hear that, yeah, yeah, that's right, God is gracious. His grace will leave you speechless because you will look at other people and you will think, no way, no way he should show mercy to them. And God's like, not, y'all are not like me. I will show mercy to who I will show mercy. I will have grace upon who I will have grace. God shows surprising mercy to sinners. You also think about this, this judgment, God as a God of justice. He has said to mankind now, I am delaying my justice. I am waiting to carry out this justice. There is a day coming when my son will return as the righteous king, of, king and lord of all creation, and as judge, he will carry out my justice on the earth perfectly. But now, now, I have shown you grace. I am waiting to pour out my judgment so that you, out of my kindness, might see my kindness and turn from your sins and trust in me. I will show mercy to you if you would trust in me. That is what God is saying to us today in Genesis 38. God's surprising mercy has something to teach us also about how, how we should live in light of his mercy. The first thing it teaches us is that receiving God's mercy produces a change in us. I think it's right to see Judah's response in verse 26 as him repenting. What you see from this point forward in the book of Genesis is not a perfect man, but a changed man. The one who was once self-serving will now sacrificially offer himself to take the place of his brother Benjamin later in Genesis. The one who was a cruel and heartless hypocrite will lead his brothers in acknowledging the sins they committed against Joseph. Re receiving God's mercy, brothers and sisters in Christ, produces a change in us. God gives us a new heart 
and new desires, desires to obey him and to walk in his ways. If God has been this good to me, I will walk in his ways, which are good for me because God made me and he made the world for me. I want, you to, I, want to, I want to ask you the question, do you see those new desires at work in you? Do you see those new desires at work in you? Or have those new desires been dulled by you not continuing to fight to put off the old and put on the new? Have you only been content to stay away from large sins, Christian, all the while overlooking things like greed, self-serving behaviors, or hypocrisy in your life? If you have been overlooking those things, God's merciful call to you today is to turn. Turn from those respectable sins as well as the large sins. Put them all to death. Turn to him for forgiveness. He has promised mercy to continue forgiving them throughout the course of your life. His mercies are new every day for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is today for those who are in Christ. That change that God's mercy produces in our lives may also require us to make significant changes to our circumstances. We can't miss the fact, nor should we overlook the fact, that the beginning of the chapter tells us that Judah has taken up residence in Canaan. But throughout Genesis, that is a sign of moving away from God rather than towards God. Not only that, he befriends a man named Hira, who appears to be a happy accomplice in all of Judah's sins. In response to God's mercy, some of us may need to consider the circumstances of our lives and the paths that our decisions have put us on. And we may need to make drastic changes in light of that. That may mean a drastic change to where we work because of specific temptations we may face there. Or where we live, right? If I've decided to live in a place that cuts me off from Christian community and opens me up to temptation, I might need to reconsider where I'm living or at least what Christian community I'm a part of. Or I may need to reconsider, like Judah, the friends I've surrounded myself with. You, you, you would want to see Hira say to him, hey, this is not good what you're doing in your life. I, I'm, I'm not going to help you in this. But his friend doesn't help him. I think this is especially important for the kids and the teens. As you grow up, your friends will increasingly determine the course of your life. If you're surrounding yourself with people who don't walk with the Lord and don't want to walk with the Lord, you might want to reconsider the nature of your relationship with them. Now, let me be, I want to be crystal clear here. I am in no way telling you to stay away from non-Christians. Not in the least. You need to be around them to share the gospel with them, to love them, to be a part of their lives, to show them what it looks like to live as a recipient of God's mercy. But the temptation will always be there for God's people to love the world and to become like the world. So my call for you today is to take stock of how your friends, all of us, adults included, are either leading you closer to or further away from God. Living in light of God's surprising mercy may require making some significant changes in your life. And one other significant change that receiving God's surprising mercy should work in us is that it should make us a genuinely humble people, right? Why do I say that? 
There's just no way to conclude from this story that apart from God's mercy, Judah has any right to belong in God's family. He has no right to belong in God's family. His sins have testified to that. The guy's self-serving. He's a liar. He's a heartless hypocrite. And yet God shows him surprising mercy. Friend, if you follow Jesus, you and I are Judah. We are Tamar. We are the recipients of surprising mercy. The the expression of your sinful nature may have been different from Judah's and from Tamar's, but the reality is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace, by his mercy as a gift that comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I wanna encourage you all to be praying for a growing awareness that continues to grow over the course of our lives of our unworthiness to be in God's family. That apart from his surprising mercy towards us, we would still be without hope, as Paul says in Ephesians. How do we know if we're growing in that awareness? We should notice two things. You should notice a growing undercurrent of gospel Gratitude that comes from recognizing that God has given you an amazing gift that you could have never earned yourself. It's only because of God's surprising mercy that you believe in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus. That should create gratitude, right? Not that we walk around as happy, happy, joy, joy people. That's not Christian joy. But an undercurrent of joy is just carrying us through life. Gratitude appears in every circumstance. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. That is gospel joy, gospel gratitude at work. And second, you should also notice a diminishing spirit of self-righteousness towards the sins of those outside the church and inside the church. I can't say this with confidence because I've only been alive in my lifetime, but I feel like we live in the most self-righteous age ever. I don't know if you would agree with me, but it is, it seems to me, the age of outrage at the sins of other people. People are canceled, doxxed, fired from jobs, shame is heaped upon him, upon them, And as Christians, we need to be aware of how the spirit of the age is working its way into our heart and how we respond to other people. We should mourn sin. We should strive to be righteously angry at sin and also say without blinking an eye about the sins of others, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Were it not for God's surprising mercy, friend, you wouldn't be who you are today. Let self-righteousness die in your heart towards the sins of those outside the church and inside the church. I, I had to get off of Twitter because I couldn't take watching Christians keep mud on one another anymore, throw grenades at one another anymore, just 
completely show outrage over outrage over outrage upon sin, upon sin, upon just casting shame on other Christians. And sin is grievous. It's bad. We should mourn it. But at the same time, we have to recognize, look, look at what we've learned in Genesis of what believers are capable of, of what Jacob was capable of, of what Isaac was capable of, of what Abraham was capable of. Grievous sins. Christians will sin. You will sin against one another. You will sin against other people. Other people will sin against you. And it's easy to adopt the outrage of the age and say, how dare you do that to me? But friend, we have all been purchased by the blood of the lamb. By God's surprising mercy, we are who we are. So sin will hurt. We should stand up to sin. We should confront sin. We hope that others would confront sin in us as well and address us as we need to be addressed. But as we address others within the church, let it be as dear brother, dear sister. Remember God's surprising mercy to you and let self-righteousness die in your heart. Friends, our God is a God of surprising justice and surprising mercy. And as his people, we see the just judgment that we deserve has fallen on his son. And we have freely received his surprising mercy by his grace. So let us live as a people marked by surprising mercy. Mercy towards others who point others to the judgment that is coming and to the mercy in Christ that exists for all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let us not shy away from your just judgment. Your judgments are in all the earth and they are right and they are just. We also say, Lord, that we deserved your judgments and by your mercy, you have relieved us of them. You have taken the burden of them off of us. We now long, no longer stand under your condemnation. We have received your surprising mercy. And so we pray, Father, that we would walk as people who have received mercy and live in a manner worthy of the calling that we've been called to. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.